Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So yes, as I was saying, <laughs> thank you all for being here this weekend. It really means a lot to me. And I know it means a lot to Karina too. Yeah. Is everyone hearing me okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> so I first met Michael um, a little more than four years ago. It feels like it's been longer than that, but it's only been about four years. Um, Before that, I was studying uh, meditation and Buddhism in a community called Shambhala, which I'm sure some of you may know. Um, And I was was practicing there really seriously and earnestly for about six years. Um, Shambhala is a a Tibetan community. It comes from a Tibetan tradition. Uh, At that time, I was working in the film business uh, as a camera assistant, which means that I kind of the way my life went was that I would work in these really, I would work really long hours in spurts, and then I would have lots of time off. And in that time off, I just really poured myself into practice. I went on so many retreats and did so much practice. Um, And Shambhala is what's called a Vajrayana tradition. And that means many things, but one of the things that it means is that the main teacher, who is this man named uh, Sakyang Nipam Rinpoche, is considered a guru. So the, t- the teacher is held very, very high up. Um, and the, the word Rinpoche, which is used for many Tibetan teachers, it literally means uh, precious one. So the teacher wears golden robes, and they, they actually sit very high up on a throne. Um, and that's just kind of how it works. So there I was, I was studying in, in Shambhala, and I was very committed to practice. And um, I was at this point where I had really done everything uh, before the point where you do this kind of major commitment where you take what's called samaya vows. And this is where you enter formally into the Vajrayana, and you enter a guru relationship with the teacher. Um, But something at that time wasn't quite sitting right with me. Um, I I just wasn't feeling connected to the teacher. And the whole thing of the teacher being so high up and um, 
all this devotion that everyone around me seemed to have for the teacher, it wasn't, it wasn't happening for me. I couldn't, I couldn't get there. Um, even though in my heart, I was so connected to the practice. You know, it's where, it, this is the place where I learned basically the same thing that we're doing here, this meditation practice, this practice of being awake. And I, it was so important to me. Um, but I, I felt like I couldn't take this very important step. And um, I, I couldn't feel the way that everyone, that it seemed like everyone else was feeling towards the teacher. Um, and I couldn't pretend that, I, I couldn't pretend that he was more important than everyone else in the room. That's how I felt. So it was actually a very painful time. Um, I, I didn't know what to do. I felt like I was in too deep, you know, to just leave. Um, so I went on a cabin retreat. I just went, um, there's these, in Vermont, there's this place where you can go and it's just you in a cabin with a little altar and a wood stove um, and you don't see anyone else and you just practice on your own. And I did that for, I think it was, I think it was 10 days or so. Um, and I just sat and I practiced and I walked in the woods and at the end of that time I decided I just, I didn't want to take Vajrayana vows and I just took a break from Shambhala for a little while. And then not long after that I heard an interview on a podcast with this guy named Michael Stone and it was a total, I mean, it was a total change of scene, you know, um, the way that he was talking about practice and the way that he described his community sounded really different, but really intriguing to me. Um, so that fall, uh, I went to Toronto with Nathan and I did a five day intensive with Michael, it was about the psychology of Buddhism. And I really liked him. Um, he, was, he was sitting on the floor, kind of like I am now, and just with, with all the students around him, and uh, his shirt was kind of wrinkly, and um, yeah, he didn't, he didn't seem to consider himself any higher up than anyone in the room. And he also, um, he seemed to live kind of a normal life, you know. He lived a, he lived the life of a person that I might know, um, and then he was talking about he was ex, he the so as I said the workshop was about um, Buddhist psychology, and I had actually at this point studied quite a lot about Buddhist psychology, um, and he but he was talking about these traditional teachings that I knew very well and. He was thinking about them differently. Um, he was bringing them to life in a way that didn't feel ancient. It felt like I didn't have to pretend something or I didn't have to suspend my reason to believe in what he was saying. Like it just made, it just made sense. And it made sense in terms of my life and it made sense in terms of the people that I knew. So, yeah, so I started going on retreats. I started sitting more with Michael's community. I didn't live in Toronto, which is where he was at the time. Um, but, 
you know, I just, every chance I got, I went on retreat with him and he became my teacher. And uh, he also became Nathan's teacher. Nathan was along for this ride as well. So in one of the first meetings that I had with Michael, I came to the meeting and I was really upset uh, because, actually because I had just had a fight with Nathan. <laughs> it was a really good fight too. <laughs> um, we, don't, we don't fight very often and this one felt like it was a big deal. Um, we, you know, we had made up. Uh, spoil, spoiler alert, we're, we got through it. Um, but but I, it really shook me. Like, and, and a lot of it was that I was, I, was, um, I was embarrassed about how I had behaved and how I had gotten really angry. Um, and I, I could really understand why Nathan was angry at me as well. Um, I was seeing really clearly through this interaction like how clingy I was being in our relationship, how I was trying to control things that I couldn't control, and how I was letting fear get the best of me in my relationship. Um, so it was, I, I knew on some level that it was good to see these things, you know? Um, you know, that's how you work through them and all that. Um, but I felt kind of embarrassed. I felt immature. I felt like, um, I felt like I should be better than that. Um, and I, I didn't know Michael very well at this point. And I was, I was embarrassed to tell him about the story and this fight and all this. And um, I had this idea that because I had done all of this Buddhist practice, that I should be like a better person. Um, that I should have gotten somewhere, that I should be less reactive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but here I was, I had, you know, I had done all, these, all this retreat practice, and I still felt like I was screwing things up a little bit. Um, I was still dealing with, you know, old habits and patterns, and it felt really disappointing to me. And I was, I was telling all this to Michael, and I was like, I mean, I was like crying. I was really upset. I was really upset about it. It was very painful, actually. And, um, and then in talking to him, he helped me see that I had this totally wrong idea about practice. I was really stuck on this expectation of transcendence. Um, and in this interview that I had with him, in this meeting I had with him, um, and actually throughout the time that I knew him, one of the things that he really helped me with was how to see that um, the things that we carry with us, our neurosis, our patterns, our habits, they're not something to get rid of. They're not something to grow out of. There's something that we work with in each and every moment. And transformation is not something that's an end goal. It's not a place that we get to. Um, it's a moment-to-moment -moment experience. So in other words, you know, something happens with your partner or something happens with somebody you work with. Um, 
something comes up in your life that creates conflict or triggers you, just because you've been to the silent retreat or you've practiced on the mountaintop or you do pranayama every day, you know, or whatever your thing is, um, it doesn't mean that it's not going to activate you. Um, all of the stuff that happened to you when you grew up, all the DNA that you're born with, your genes, um, all the trauma that you've experienced in your life, it's still going to be there, no matter how much you practice. Um, and what practice gives us is not an escape from these things, but it's a way to open to them and maybe to learn something from them. This is why in Buddhism we say, embrace your suffering, welcome it in. Only by really opening to all the facets of our experience, all of our struggles, only then can we learn how to be human and how to be awake. And being awake is, is not necessarily a blissful state. Um, in sitting practice, we cultivate, and in mindfulness practice, we cultivate stillness so that we can experience a kind of gap or a, a stopping of reactivity. So maybe you felt this today when you were sitting this morning um, or this afternoon. Um, you're on your cushion and you're sitting there and something arises. Maybe it's something unpleasant. So like maybe you had a memory of, um, like, of something that embarrassed you, right? Some situation you were in that was embarrassing. But instead of reacting in the normal way that you would when that kind of memory comes up, which would be to like go on Instagram, um, you just stay on your cushion, right? So you're in the zendo, you're around all these people, and um, you just stay sitting and you stay breathing. Um, and then two things happen. Um, one is that you actually get to feel the feeling that you're having, right, instead of avoiding it. So maybe, maybe like your ears get a little warm um, or you feel a little tension in your shoulders, whatever arises for you when you feel embarrassment. And then you actually get to experience what happens as that feeling changes or turns into something else. And instead of going straight to, from the feeling to the reaction, which is Instagram or whatever, ice cream, whatever, um, you've, you've had this tiny experience of a little bit of a gap or a little bit of space. Did anyone feel this this morning? Yeah? Okay. So this, this, just this little experience of space, this little gap or this little, um, this little bit of stopping, this is what's known as neurota or, or cessation. And it's just small, it's just very brief. And then something else happens, something else comes in, something else arises. The problem is that sometimes this idea is um, a bit conflated. 
it's, it's taken a bit far. And this is where we get these lofty notions of like enlightenment with a capital E or Nirvana or something like that. Um, it's this idea that like that I was that I kind of had as I was describing earlier, where like we think, oh, if I just practice enough, I'll get to this place that's like somewhere above, like somewhere above being human. I I, I won't have to suffer anymore. I'll, I'll be I'll be enlightened, right? Or maybe even just this idea that we have that will be somehow above the day-to-day triggers and reactions. But if you have some experience with practice, then you know that this is just fiction, right? We're, we're never going to get to that place. Um, or we're never going to get there in a way that's permanent, right? Um, and this is, this is why I keep saying awakening is, is really just a momentary experience. And if you try to hang on to it, it's gone. It's, it's just not possible to sustain it forever. Um, but the flip side of that is that the opportunity to be awake is there in every single moment. You can always, you can always access that. In Zen, there's a saying, which is, um, fall down seven times, get up eight. Fall down seven times, get up eight. And this is not an instruction, you know, just for a beginning student. This, the idea is that this is, this is the process of the whole path of practice. In other words, it's really not about getting it right. So, for example, you, you come into the zendo, and uh, you walk to your cushion, and you forget to bow to your cushion. And then... Um, Oops. <laughs> everyone, everyone else around you remembered and you feel a little bit dumb, but you forgot. But it's okay, you still sit down. Instead of beating yourself up about it, you just sit down and still, despite that mistake, you bring your whole body to the practice. Your whole imperfect body that makes mistakes. You bring that body. And then you sit. And when you sit, you feel your breath. You feel your breath. And then you forget and you get distracted. But you don't just give up the whole thing. You just come back. You start again. You fall down. You get back up. And then a few minutes later, you turn in the wrong direction for walking meditation. Again, you fall down, you get back up. This is how it works. Michael was someone who knew about falling, and he knew about getting up. Sometimes, because of his illness, His falls could be dark and they could be scary. But when he was able to get back up, he could then share his experience in a way that really touched everyone around him. Not because he had transcended, but because he had struggled. 
And I think this is exactly what made Michael such a powerful teacher and what made him so meaningful to all of us. So I wanted to read his words here. Michael says, Most of us have had fantasies of an all-consuming enlightenment experience that wipes away past karma. We perhaps wish for a single intense moment that makes us entirely new. But bodies, minds, and habits are not something we can transcend. We will always need to take care of ourselves physically and mentally, and this means being aware of our habitual ways of perceiving and being. Whatever is happening in our life, we open to it. We do not turn away. We do not turn the present into something that fits our stories of ourselves, because knowing the truth, the truth that's happening now, is more, is more important than fighting to feel good. Do you want me to read that again? Yes. <laughs> Something Michael would have done. <laughs> Most of us have had fantasies of an all-consuming enlightenment experience that wipes away past karma. We perhaps wish for a single intense moment that makes us entirely new. But bodies, minds, and habits are not something we can transcend. We will always need to take care of ourselves physically and mentally, and this means being aware of our habitual ways of perceiving and being. Whatever is happening in our life, we open to it. We do not turn away. We do not turn the present into something that fits our stories of ourselves, because knowing the truth, the truth that's happening now, is more important than fighting to feel good. Michael told me about his diagnosis about a year ago. I was assisting him on retreat. And he shared with me a few of the details of what the highs and lows felt like. And he told me some of his experiences of um, really deep depression and also um, a bit about manic, what it felt to be like in a manic state to feel disembodied in that way. And hearing these stories made me worry about him. Um, it made me feel tender and it made me feel concerned. But it didn't, for a second, make me question his wisdom or his role as my teacher. It reminded me actually of why I was drawn to him in the first place. Um, here he was, he was sitting eye level with me and he was sharing his humanness. He was sharing who he was. And I was reminded that to struggle and to struggle really deeply is is human in the deepest sense. And hearing him tell me these things helps me to trust myself to look openly at my own insecurities and, and my own darkness. He also told me that he had recently gone on medication and that it was helping him. Um, it wasn't perfect. He, he needed to rely more on notes for his talks 
Um, he felt a little bit sluggish. Um, but these setbacks were, were worth it for the greater balance he was feeling in his moods. Um, he needed this medication. And he also relied on Karina and on his therapist for support. Um, he needed students like me and Rose, who many of you know, um, people like Doug and Nathan, who could help him run retreats so he could have some downtime. He needed help, and he wasn't afraid to admit that. And in this admission, he was helping me understand another teaching, um, which is that none of us exist apart from everything around us. You know, our loved ones, our friends, our food, our community, our government, and our medicine. To be an advanced student, to be an accomplished meditator, to be someone who's done lots of retreat practice, um, or to have perfect posture is not enough. A person is made up of everything they touch and everything that touches them. Bodhisattvas are needed, but they also need things. And to, to serve without needing help is impossible. So as you know from Karina's statement, um, in the last few months, Michael's medication wasn't working as well. Um, I didn't know this at the time. Um, he was falling deeper, and he was having a hard, harder time getting back up. When I was with him during that time, I sensed a bit of a shift. Um, and it was confusing to me because I didn't, I didn't really understand what was happening. Um, he seemed a little less available, a little more preoccupied. Um, sometimes he seemed a bit irritable. And so, I, I don't know, I had, I had some hunch that it had to do with his illness, but I really didn't know what was happening. And his death was a shock. It's, it's still very shocking. And at times, to be really honest, I've really struggled um, with understanding how he could have taken such a risk. You know? um, but, it's, but it's because of what he taught me that ultimately I am able to understand. I really am. Um, if not logically, then at least in my heart. And I forgive him for it. I still love Michael and, and celebrate the person that he was. And I feel an incredible amount of gratitude to have spent the time that I did with him. And I keep receiving this wisdom that even our best and most important teachers, the ones, even the ones that we think of as just so wonderful and so perfect, they're not perfect. They're not transcendent. 
Um, they're not above mistakes and they're not above struggles and they're not above desperation. And neither are we. And I, I hope that with this understanding that we can all forgive ourselves and each other a little bit more and understand ourselves and each other a little bit more and have a little more courage to look closely at our own struggles and to keep falling down and keep getting back up. Thank you.